Welcome to the session of the economics of the internet at the Hudson Institute. My name is Harold Furch Scott Roth, and we're very pleased today to have with us Professor Swati Bhatt from Princeton University. Uh, Professor Bhatt uh, received her PhD from Princeton and has taught many different types of courses at Princeton, uh, everything from uh, financial derivatives uh, to now she is teaching a class on the economics of the internet. Uh, one of the very first classes on this topic to be taught at a major research institution in the United States. Um, I am so pleased to see everyone here today. Uh, as we speak in about 15 minutes, I understand uh, there will be a, a press call at the FCC on the forthcoming network neutrality order. So, uh, uh, you know, we here won't be uh, on that call. Um, uh, for those of you uh, who have questions to ask for our online audience, uh, it uh, is uh, hashtag uh, Hudson Institute, and uh, the specific event today is at Network Economy, is that right? Hashtag network economy. Uh, so our online audience can uh, submit questions and uh, we'll have uh, uh, Professor Bott will uh, speak to us for perhaps 40 or 45 minutes and then we will open up the floor to questions. Uh, so uh, imagine if you can uh, that you are a student at Princeton University and you have an opportunity to take a class from one of the most popular professors on campus who is going to be talking about what has to be the most interesting topic of the day, which is the economics of the internet. So sit back, enjoy the class, and I'm going to turn things over to Professor Bott. Thank you. Can I speak? Please, please. Thank you uh, very much, Harold, for inviting me. Thank you to the Hudson Institute. I'm delighted to be here. Um, the talk is on the economics of the internet, um, digitization, what does it mean for the economy, uh, competition or cooperation. So let's start with cooperation. The word cooperation can be thought of as uh, collaboration, we thought of as sharing, can be thought of also as participation. So for example, in my class, um, the economics of the internet at Princeton, it's a very participation-based class. My students interact, ask me questions, give comments, and that participation really is what makes the whole more than the sum of the parts. And what I want to talk about is actually starting with that uh, idea of collaboration as part of uh, cooperation. So for example, in, in the technology world, collaboration is the heart of creativity. We've seen collaboration that's led to, since 1949, the transistor, the microchip, the microprocessor, the computer. In education, we've seen collaboration uh, very, as, as, as the heart of um, what we do at, at the teaching level, which is face-to-face -face, uh, interaction, minds rubbing against minds, as Bill Bowen puts it in his new book. Uh, that kind of collaboration, that kind of participation, that kind of sharing, <coughs> is really important. In, in soci sociology, we've got social media where sharing is very much a part of what it's all about, that collaboration. So that's technology, sociology. Before we talk about politics and economics, we need to take a step back and we need to talk about the internet. Because it's not just, it is about sharing, but it's more than sharing. When I, let me ask you, what comes to mind when you think about the internet? What is the internet? And we, let's talk about the internet as 
very broadly defined to mean the entire system of hardware, software, devices, the pipelines, and I'm going to come back to the notion of pipelines, the entire um, ecosystem. What comes to mind when you think of the internet? One word, and I ask my class this, and, and, and they really don't like it because they know that I'm looking for one word, a particular word, and they, like, they don't like to be graded on that one particular word. But it's actually very important. Communication, it's connectivity. Exactly, connectivity. What the internet has done is connected all of us. So think of, think of our landscape all of us individuals as occupying circles. So think of this map, global map. Individuals or institutions are circles in this map. And they're all connected by lines. So we've got this map of circles and lines connecting these circles. So it's internet, it's that connectivity which is those lines connecting all these circles. So now think about what that means. Now that you've got all these circles connected, there are two major implications of that. One is that if these links, think of these links as pipelines, for example, or roadways, information gets transmitted between these circles, between individuals, but we're thinking about this map, which is a nice visualization. So information gets transmitted instantly, continuously, and ubiquitously. That's very important, instantly. There's no waiting like in the old days where you have to go on horseback from one village to the other before you know of what's happened in the other village. Continuously, all the time, 24-7, ubiquitously. That's vital. That's very recent. Mobile communication has made it ubiquitous anywhere, anytime. Anywhere is what is the ubiquitous part of it. I can be anywhere and I'm connected. So information along those lines, along those roadways, is transmitted instantly, continuously, and ubiquitously. What this also does is the second most important feature, the second big driver of our economy. The first driver is this information. Second driver is we can now tap at an incremental level, at a granular level, into data, information, quantitative information about these circles, these individuals, these institutions. So not only do we have qualitative information flowing along these lines, these roadways, but we can get quantitative information at a very detailed level. And I call that granularity. That's increasing granularity in the internet economy. And I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that. Um, in fact, my forthcoming book is about granularity in the internet economy. Now, this granularity, this the ability to get data at this detailed level, there are two sides to it which are very important. But let's take a step back. Let's take, let's go back, really go far, far back, 4,000, 5,000 years ago. We had trade and commerce. We had markets. We had money. Back in pre-biblical times, we had money, we had markets. What we did also have is barter. Person A would bring 
wheat in exchange for um, wood for, from person B. So there was barter from A, uh, from A to B, vice versa. Along the way, something changed. Along the way, there came a trader. And I use that word very specifically, because I'm going to call that something else in just a minute. Along the way, there came a trader who, think of it as, as uh, generally placed himself between A and B and managed to convey the goods from A to B and the goods from B to A. When there was money that evolved along the way, he would then exchange the goods for money between A and B. So there was money, there was markets, and now there's a trader who is intervening between A and B. The trader would take his cut between A and B. Now that set the system for a long period of time. We're talking a very long time, through the ages until recently, until the internet age. And it's hard to define the internet age, but I'm going to recite a few dates so that you can get a sense of the ladder of innovation. And I'm being rather vague about this, but um, these dates are, are important in their uh, sequence. 1949, transistor, very important for, for the internet. 1959, the microchip, integrated circuit. 1969, the microprocessor. 1979, personal computer. 1989, roughly, the World Wide Web, the internet, the pre-internet, the World Wide Web, 1989. 1999, search engines, Google. Google was incorporated in around that time. 2009, roughly around 2009, 2007 was the first, was the iPhone, so the smartphone, the iPad, so it's about 2009. So this is from, from the transistor, the microchip, microprocessor, personal computer, World Wide Web, search engines, iPhone, smartphone. That's technology. That's that connectedness. What did that do to our model with the trader? at the heart of the market, between A and B. Now think for a moment. All of that technology has allowed the buyers to amass incredible amounts of data about sellers. There are reputation cascades, reviews, online reviews, social media, and word of mouth, incredibly powerful transmission mechanism of information, of data. Think about on the other side, for the seller. The seller now has an incredible amount of information about buyers. What kinds of coffee do people like? So Starbucks can now produce, can now sell a variety of different coffee. And in fact, that data now is public information. So in my town, there isn't a Starbucks. The information about the kinds of coffee that people like is publicly available, is freely available. So a small company in Princeton, Small World Coffee has taken over. Small World Coffee is where everybody meets and greets each other in town. There is no Starbucks. The information required to sell is now available everywhere. The information required to buy is also available everywhere. So think what that must have done. This intermediary, I'm going to call that trader now an intermediary because he's not just trading. He's actually 
or she is in between the buyer and the seller. Now that the buyer has information, the seller has information, there is a meeting between the buyer and the seller directly. They don't need this intermediary anymore. This is what I call the task rabbiting of the economy. And that's a task rabbit is, 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 is an app on, um, uh, offered on, at least on my iPad, which is where I go if I want some job done and I go to TaskRabbit and I need my garage cleaned, I go to TaskRabbit, there's somebody there who's available and bingo, I've got the job done. If I want to buy a product, I can search online, I can go to Amazon, I can go to any app. As a buyer, I can search for across a variety of different apps. As a seller, I can search over a variety of different apps. There is a meeting now between the buyer and the seller that is circumventing this intermediary. What has that done? Circumventing the intermediary has done what? Sorry? It's, we're getting, not quite, but we're getting there. What has happened when I mentioned the trader in, in pre-biblical times would intervene between a buyer and a seller and he'd take his cut? You remove this trader. The trader no longer takes his cut. But now, wait a second. That doesn't mean that prices are going to go down. Right? There's, there's the difference. That intermediary is no longer there. However, a buyer is willing to pay a certain amount for a good. He value or she values it at, let's say, $10. He's willing to pay $10. It costs the seller $2 to produce that good. So there's a difference. I'm willing to pay 10 it costs the seller eight, a two, so there's a difference of $8. There's a surplus of $8 between what I'm willing to pay and it, what it costs the seller to produce. It, in previous times, pre-internet, it was that intermediary who would capture some of that $8 surplus. Because he would buy from the seller pay him maybe a little bit more than two, and then sell to me at just a little bit under 10, leaving me maybe one nine ninety nine, leaving me one cent, so I'd feel like I'm getting a little bit more than I would have paid. He's capturing the bulk of the surplus. With the intermediary gone, that difference of $8 is now left on the table to be bargained over between the buyer and the seller. It won't disappear. It doesn't disappear. But what it does is it empowers individuals. It empowers these individuals who we are now working at a, who are now at a granular level. So it's this um, Airbnb uh, renter and me, who's visiting a town and is uh, renting this place from the owner of this apartment over Air Airbnb, how much of that surplus we split between us is then going to be decided between the owner of that apartment or house and me, roughly speaking. How that surplus is actually going to be decided um, is not governed by any rules. It is going to be... Um, determined at, at present on a sort of rough case-by-case -case basis. But I would like to put forth the idea that we are coming back to a collaboration there. I think what we've, what we've got when we're talking about division of the surplus is a, a form of, um, we're going to form groups 
We're going to collaborate across groups and come to some agreement as to how we want to um, divide up this, this surplus. There won't be any cut for um, the intermediary. Think of these as cooperative groups. Cooperative groups who, dis who realize that there is a surplus that has to be shared between the buyer and the, the seller. So that's where we're headed. When I talk about this intermediaries disappearing and this surplus being left on the table, what I want to talk about uh, first is to give some meaning to two terms that have been thrown around a lot and then move on to an example that I think is very much on our minds. Let me first elaborate upon two terms that have been used a lot. Um, the on-demand economy and the sharing economy. Where is this coming from and what does it mean? Within the framework of my model, what I'm talking about, the buyer and seller now meeting, the intermediary being eliminated, that surplus that's sitting on the table, the $10 minus the $2, those $8 of surplus, is being shared between the buyer and the seller. That is at the heart of the sharing economy, the sharing of this surplus can be decided by collaborative groups, cooperative groups. It can be decided by uh, some kind of a uh, general uh, cooperation agreement. That's the sharing economy. The on-demand economy, again, goes back to my model. When I talked about circles and links, Circles being individuals, links, um, lines connecting these circles, information flowing instantly, continuously, and ubiquitously. Buyers having full information about the sellers. There is instant gratification possible. There is the possibility of being satisfied right away with whatever it is that you would like to purchase. That is the on-demand economy. The on-demand economy means that you can access the seller of a particular good if you're a buyer, and I can access the buyer of a particular good if I'm a seller. So that's the on-demand economy. Now, let me move to uh, one example that's smaller, and then another larger one, which is very much on our minds. The smaller one, one of my colleagues has just done a study on uh, Uber um, country w across the country, the, considering data from 2010 through 2012, and his results are rather interesting. Uh, most um, Uber drivers tend to be young, between 30 and 39, the details are in his paper, but I'm just giving you the big picture. Most Uber drivers, uh, driver partners as they're called, tend to be young, between 30 and 39. They tend to be well-educated. Most have gone to college. They tend to be married. They tend to have children. They tend, less than 8% of the population that he surveyed were unemployed. So those who are participating, my takeaway here would be that those who are participating in this sharing economy, on-demand economy, are not those who are unemployed or can't be employed. They are rather these sellers who are meeting up with buyers because of this instant, continuous, and ubiquitous data that is allowing the matching of buyers and sellers. I don't need to wait for somebody to hold my hand and take me to the buyer's side or the seller's side. I can do it by myself. So now is the big question. There is actually a very big issue that is um, going on right, in, right now in Washington. The buyers are all of us. We're the users of content. 
broadcast content more generally. And the sellers are those who provide that content. So you've got the traditional broadcasters, and then you've got Netflix and HBO. The sellers, then the buyers. And there is an intermediary in this picture. The intermediary is, um, I'm going to draw a big circle around traditional broadcasters, the ABC and the NBC and the Fox, um, cable at the center, and broadband at the center. So you've got content providers, users, and the intermediaries, cable and broadband. Let's put broadband on the side. Just let's look at cable. Cable is taking content from those who make it, the traditional broadcasters, HBO, Netflix, and then selling it along this pipeline, this link or this line from this circle, the intermediary, to this other circle, that's us, the users. That pipeline is costly. It costs a lot of money to maintain that pipeline. That intermediary's job, the raison d'etre, the reason for their existence, is to maintain that pipeline. And it costs money. So one way they can do it is by um, pricing such, pricing, uh, charging prices for the content providers such that they can maintain that pipeline, which is the current state of affairs. So they're charging content provider A a little bit different from what they charge content provider B such that they can then maintain that roadway, that pipeline between the tower, between the intermediary and us as users. If they can't charge A, B, and C differently, A, B, and C content providers, if they're not able to make any increment uh, in, in profit to maintain that pipeline, that pipeline's not going to be maintained between the towers and us. So the idea the, the proposal before us today is to say, well, let's not do that kind of differential pricing between A, B, and C. Let's price them all. Let's make sure that everybody's priced equivalently. So it's, it may be in terms of speed or in terms of actual dollars, but I'm just talking about prices generally. Let's price identically. So then we're talking about that pipeline, that roadway between the towers that's the intermediary and us. Who maintains that roadway? So under the old rule, it was the pricing structure that enabled the intermediary to maintain the roadway. Under the proposed new rules, the question is one of who's going to maintain that roadway. And here is one proposal or one answer, which is that sometimes excessive regulation or a rule where you are interfering with prices or forcing prices to follow, into, uh, follow along a certain line might actually entrench the existing system into a certain, uh, uh, into a certain format. I saw this way back in 1984. Um, I was a student at Princeton at the time. My husband was at Bell Labs. And AT&T, which owned Bell Labs at the time, was being restructured. And there was talk of AT&T being a huge monopoly, uh, too big. And it needed to be divested. So they split AT&T into the long distance and the regional Bell operating companies, which is the local companies. And they split Bell Labs off. And, and the litany of uh, uh, inventions that I mentioned earlier, practically half of them came from Bell Labs, so we really lost a gem in, in, in the middle. But let's set that aside. The, 
the interesting point about that was in 1984, AT&T was uh, divested of its regional, uh, the local companies and the long distance. That was 1984. In 1994, I was teaching at Princeton and a student of mine wrote a thesis entitled, Ma Bell, are you back again? By 1994, AT&T had pr pretty much come back to what it was. Some of the regional Bell operating companies had merged into, uh, into the Verizon, into PacBell, Southwestern Bell, uh, a, a handful of companies not the multiple uh, companies that, the, um, that was formerly envisioned. So we were back to square one after um, wasting, I think, a lot of time and money in that entire divestiture proce pro process. What had happened in between? Wireless. The technology had changed. All of a sudden, having access to copper to those to pipelines, to those long distance and local pipelines, didn't matter anymore. Because all of a sudden, you had these little operators coming up with wireless uh, communication, which rendered whatever AT&T and the regional Bell operating companies had absolutely obsolete. The technology made the regulation or deregulation obsolete. It wasn't necessary. And AT&T went back roughly to what it was. Where we are today? is exactly where, roughly where we were, 1984. It's AT&T and Verizon. And now maybe DISH, which is, uh, which is bid for a lot of uh, spectrum just about yesterday. Let's fast forward now um, 30 years. <coughs> we are seeing somewhat of the same kind of issue, same kind of regulation. And my question is here is that technology might render this entire uh, net neutrality debate obsolete. It may not matter whether you price the content of A, B, and C differently because the maintenance of that pipeline from the cell towers to us might undergo a huge technological change or it might end up being payer-funded, there might be a whole new revenue model that might come about. And therefore, changing the model itself, the payment mechanism, might actually not be necessary. I say might because we don't have exact answers, but I think the example of AT&T is, is, is well taken here that we don't want to wait 10 years to find out, well, gee, would have been better if we'd left the whole system uh, alone. So that's where I'm going to end. Open to questions. Yes. My name is Hart Schwartz. Um, for the point about the intermediaries being obsolete, um, I have a couple comments. One is, isn't the hardware and the software the new intermediary? We still pay for them. Um, it's just not a person. And the second comment is, what about trust and the role of face-to-face -face conversation to renew trust on a regular basis? How do you know you're getting what you think you're getting? Those both very good questions. Um, to the first one, intermediary is not so much a hardware, software issue, but rather somebody who will intervene between the ultimate seller and the ultimate buyer very broadly defined. And so um, if you think about cable as being an intermediary, they own that cell tower, and, uh, and they're also providing, let's say, internet services. They're the intermediary between the content, uh, HBO, Netflix, the traditional broadcasters, and the users, which is us. And so that's the, that's the intermediary. Um, in answer to your question about trust and reputation, that is at the foundation of uh, of the internet broadly defined, absolutely. Um, if you, to go back to the days of barter, the reason that um, in those days you, you had um, command economies where the, the king sort of said, this is what you're going to do and this is what you're going to price it at is because there were no rules, there was no regulation, there were no laws, and therefore there was no trust. Well, that's been replaced. We do have laws. But underlying 
the entire framework is, and particularly with respect to the internet, is a bedrock of trust and reputation. And I mentioned reputation, uh, reputation cascades when I talked about the sellers being uh, uh, incredibly diverse, being granular, uh, but one bad uh, review can completely kill you. And so that's, reputation has a bite, um, but it's, it, is, it is more than that. It's more than that in the sense that in the long run, there will be retribution, there will be a bite, the legal system will take over. In the short run, there will be losers. And that is something that is part, very much part of this internet world. Uh, James saying, I wonder if you could take a few words about your model where AT&T um, adiabatically metamorphizes in the 1980s into a wireless company. It's my impression and I, uh, that AT&T's that approach to wireless in the 80s and 90s was fairly negative and it was kind of dragged kicking and screaming into the wireless business. So I, I, I would challenge the assumption that it could, the transition will drive a company rather than a transition will draw, create up competitors which transform companies. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's a counterfactual, and, and so it's, it's, it's hard to say if, if the consent decree had not, decree had not been enacted, that AT&T had not been split up, would we have had wireless at all? Um, I've, I've read that AT&T actually tried to uh, suppress um, the sale of fax machines because they thought that would replace telephones. Uh, so so uh, your point is absolutely well taken. Um, the, the, my, my point about wireless is not that AT&T would have developed wireless, but that it would have come about, the technology was already available, and that breaking up AT&T may not have been the only route to um, demonopolizing, if it was, demonopolizing that market because there was an alternative technology that was waiting to, to burst onto the scene. But your point is absolutely well taken, that it's not clear AT&T would have done it. I really appreciate the summation of the evolution of technology over, over my lifetime. But um, one thing I wanted to mention in you, you very, I'm sure, are aware of science fiction, popular science fiction in the 60s, i.e. Star Trek, and the phasers and the communication devices, which clearly alluded to what was coming down the pike, being able to speak into these small devices, which is essentially what we see now. But I wanted to ask you, with all that information you have, I assume that you, it's, you're easy to, it's easy for you to predict where things are going, and I'm just as excited to find out what should I be investing in right now? <laughs> Not in the intermediaries, <laughs> if they are disappearing. Um, I end my course by, by, by with the following line. I say, the consumer is king. And I mean that in, in a very specific way. I mean that um, this these, these links between these different circles has provided such an incredible information uh, pathway that um, there is no way that any one individual can have power over the distribution of that surplus between a buyer and a seller, however defined. And um, so when it comes to actually investing, I would invest in individuals. Individuals seem to have an incredible amount of, of power now. Um, it's going to take a lot of creativity to figure out what that means in terms of actual hard cash. But, but I sort of feel like um, I'm, I'm stating the economic version of what Tom Friedman wrote many years ago. Um, the world is flat. Uh, the economy is kind of flat because the consumer is now, is now king. Individuals have a lot of power. Find the right individual. Hi, um, I'm Raj, a DC resident and an IT professional. Thank you. 
Um, you mentioned that uh, trust is a bedrock of internet economy. Um, well, we users also provide content, giving content away, our personal data, for example. Um, some people are not comfortable because there is this degree of distrust. Some people close their Facebook accounts, for example. They are not posting so many pictures. They are, they are pulling back because of this uh, distrust. So I would like to know your thoughts uh, on uh, regulations regarding data privacy. Thank you. That's a good question, and I think um, it's a double-edged sword. When I talked about these, these, these links between circles and information passing between them, it's incredibly valuable to both sides. So there is a value to that information. For example, you mentioned that any time you go to a site, you kind of get something for free, but it's not, that free is, is, is very relative. It's, it's, it's free because you're not paying in terms of dollars, but you are paying in terms of your time, your attention, and your information. You're giving your information, and that's valuable. It's valuable to you because of privacy issues, but it's very valuable to the, to the other part. That is exactly where the seller is getting their data from. Um, how, would you, uh, how would you rank the, the uh, or how would you evaluate the fact that you're getting this, this, this service or product for free in exchange for your private information is, is a um, calculus that every individual has to make whether you want to be on Facebook or not, whether you want to give personal information or not. Um, for example, when I uh, am asked for my personal data, my address and phone number and email address, and I say, well, is that necessary? And if it isn't, then I will not give it just because I don't want to leave, uh, I don't want to be receiving all kinds of messages. Um, but then I am incurring the cost of not being um, on the list of these individuals who might supply me with valuable information. And it's a calculation that I have to make. However, when it comes to national security, we're talking about a whole other set of issues. What does privacy mean when national security is at stake? Um, and I think that's, an, again, a calculation that is, is made by individuals in different ways. Um, but what we have here is, is what we in economics call the tragedy of the commons. And, and the story here is it goes back to, to uh, an agricultural society. If everybody's got their, their cows and everybody takes the cows to the common pasture to, to graze, then pretty soon there's going to be nothing left because everybody's taking their cows to graze on this common land. It's the tragedy of the commons. If these individuals came to some kind of agreement amongst each other that, hey, look, it's not in our interest to, to overgraze. We need to come, um, up, come up with some agreement uh, some collective bargaining so that we can all be better off, uh, we should do that. And I think when it comes to national security, we need to have a collective uh, action solution where we all recognize that, that giving up some privacy might be in the national, in our collective interest. It won't be in, in my individual interest. No, if, I, if, if all of you gave up your information and I was the only one that didn't, I wouldn't get hurt because there was this body of knowledge that took care of the country. But then everybody's going to be thinking like me. And then soon everyone's going to be taking their cows to graze on this pasture, and pretty soon there's going to be nothing left. And so this is the tragedy of the commons. It, it, I think there, it's, it's a matter of information, really, uh, or, or, or knowledge, not information, knowledge, knowing that it's just a little bit of information that I need to give up but it is in the interest, it's in our collective interest. And that it may seem like it's okay for me to say, no, I'm not gonna do it. But then I have to understand that everyone is like me and everyone is going to think the same way. And if we all think the same way, then we have no national security. So that's, there's, there's, a, there's that collective action problem at the national level. At the individual level, it has to be like, should I sign up on Facebook or not, is very much an individual calculation. Uh, 
Thank you for uh, the talk. It's been very interesting. Um, not to hit back on internet privacy again, but is it really a choice? I mean, in the internet economy, do you really have the option to step out, to not give your data? I mean, I, I feel like companies definitely take it, and they're not necessarily telling you exactly what they're taking. Um, they might not take your name and your address, but they take where you were before you hit their website, and they help connect sellers with buyers and get rid of that intermediary. But there's not really a choice to not do that. You can't just, in an internet economy, you can't just not be a part of the economy. That's a, that's a, that's a um, very good question. And, and um, let's go back to this analogy that I had about this, the roadway that's linking, um, or, or, or the links, the, 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 the lines between different circles. Um, in my view, these lines, these links, are like roads. That's, that's really public property. That is like, um, that's like a road, a, a, a public road. And once you're on the roadway, the fact that you're there is common knowledge. It's public information. And so the internet itself is really uh, a public good in that sense that whatever, whenever you're on that roadway, it is public information that you're on that roadway. To think that you can be on that roadway and not leave a sign at all is, in my opinion, not realistic at all. Um, and, and whether that means that the roadway should be patrolled as a public roadway is, is, is another issue. But the fact of the matter is that we've allowed this roadway to be free and open. When I talked about uh, information being instantly, continuously, and ubiquitously available, it's also freely available, which means that the idea that you can keep your information private just, it, it's not, uh, doesn't work. Yes, right. David Leduc with the Software and Information Industry Association. Um, I very much appreciate your comments about intermediaries and I've uh, been spending a lot of time thinking about that. When I look at intermediaries, I, I sometimes, I, th I think what I'm seeing, and I wanted to get your, your feedback on this, is some of the old-fashioned intermediaries, booksellers who had to print books and deliver them, um, that don't need to print them and deliver them anymore, recording industries that don't need to, you know, print music in a medium and, 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 and physically distribute it. But in these two industries and others, we seem to still have intermediaries, but they're transitioning. You know, we still need, we don't need... We arguably don't need recording studios anymore to make records, but we, we probably do need, uh, you know, intermediaries to provide cloud streaming of, of, of music, which is the future of music, and, and we need intermediaries to find books, or we seem to right now. Maybe, maybe that will drop away, but I, I, I think I'm seeing intermediaries transitioning, and, and some older intermediaries trying to continue their role when they were maybe serving a different era, you know, and I wondered if you could speak to that. And, and Uber is an example where we kind of have a new intermediary or, you know, it's, but it's still an intermediary empowering people. It's a little more direct, but not entirely free. But anyway. That's a good question. I think we're in a transition phase, but let me get back. You p talked about books and music. I think we're already seeing a transition. Um, I'm, I'm not that familiar with the most popular artists, but I do recall reading that uh, Beyonce has uh, made a deal to sell her song, one of her albums uh, directly to Spotify, which is this online streaming um, app. And, and if you, you get the first song for free, but you buy the entire album. And it, I'm not sure whether it was Beyonce or another very popular artist, but so she's directly interacting with, with the users. So there's the seller and the user coming together. When it comes to books, um, there's this self-publishing that's made possible by Amazon. So I can contact Amazon, I have a book, and they're gonna publish. It's not peer-reviewed, but that's another category. But I can publish my own book. So, so music's, music, books, um, as a journalist, I don't need to be hired by the New York Times. That may be why the New York Times has got only one million digital subscribers, which their revenues went down last year. Um, what has replaced journalism? I can write my own blog. I may only have 100 followers. I may have two followers. But as a journalist, I can write. And somebody's going to read. Maybe that'll be more than those who would read 
if I wrote in the New York Times or the Washington Post. So, so there's an instance of, of this disintermediation or the intermediary being um, uh, dis disbanded. And, and in countless uh, different uh, industries, we're seeing exactly this, this, uh, this process. In financial markets, we're seeing this in a huge way. Um, for those of you who've been following um, the digital currency um, markets, Bitcoin, which is a cryptocurrency, has everybody wondering whether it's going to replace money. Uh, no, it's not going to replace money because there are attributes of money that are a little bit more than what Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a digital currency where I can pay for a good by entering in uh, a, a certain um, long string of different, um, uh, uh, let's say, code, and it gets translated. It's an algorithm gets translated by this ledger or balance sheet and then gets sent to the seller. It's a little complicated, but it can be done via internet. I don't need to see anybody. I don't need to give my name. I don't need to be there. I don't need to wor worry about currency uh, convertibility or exchange rates. It's not money, though. It's not money because what it is is a payments mechanism. It's a way of paying. It is not a store of value, which is what money is. And it's not a unit of account, which is what money is. Money, the dollar, is a payments mechanism, a unit of account, and a store of value. I can get my salary denominated in dollars, and I'm quite happy with that. I would not denominate, have my salary denominated in Bitcoin. Why? Because a Bitcoin is selling for under $1,000 today. It could sell one Bitcoin, could sell for 400 next month. If I were getting my salary in Bitcoins, that's, I couldn't buy that same amount of a basket of goods next month as I could this month. So no, it's not a unit of account and it's not a store of value, so it is not money, but it is a medium of exchange. So here's where uh, we've, we've got um, the, the intermediary, the central bank is already somewhat being replaced with Bitcoin in, in the currency area. Hi, I was curious where you stood on the uh, administration's uh, broadband stimulus uh, program, um, which started in 2009, trying to bring uh, broadband infrastructure to underserved communities, and whether you know that's been more pro or con in the in those efforts across the country. That's interesting because um, it, it depends on whether you think of broadband as a public good. It's like you know, clean air and, and, and water and, and, and the park and roadways and uh, um, electricity, for example. Well, that's not quite a public good, but um, if broadband is a public good, then investing in broadband, uh, just as you invest in defense and the environment, is, is absolutely uh, a great idea. If it's not a public good, then the question is, how do you pay for it? And um, my own view is that um, broadband is, is, a, is, a, um, is a very wide term where it could, it could be, I mean, if I had unlimited access to unlimited broadband, I would be seeing um, movies streaming online all the time, which are very data hungry. And, and somebody else who wants access to the same pipeline just for getting the weather report or, or emergency information would not be able to get onto that pipeline because I'm streaming all these movies online. Uh, um, that is not a tenable situation. And so if these pipelines are to be made into a public good, broadband is to be made into a public good, then I think we need to go on what I call the need to know principle. You will, pay for, you will pay for any broadband that is more than need to know. So the basic uh, service, which is emergency service, weather, uh, news, some sort of a basic uh, um, package, that's absolutely the, the lowest possible uh, package that uh, is meant for survival, let's say, should be free and should be paid for. Anything above that, 
individuals pay for um, as a, a, according to their preferences. And so the, the question there will be, what is this need to know body of knowledge that should be, that should be allowed to be uh, transmitted free on public broadband? But there should be some body of Uh, Tom Timberg, uh, consultant. Uh, I was just, it's a very impressive, very enlightening for me picture of the entire economy. I wonder how you connect it with the uh, trends in income distribution that are reported. Now, first place, one of the questions is what are those trends? But it would seem that this would lead to a much more equal distribution, and that isn't necessarily what we have been seeing. That's a difficult question. I income distribution is, is one of these, uh, one of these, let's go back to my model of circles and lines. It's one of these circles that has got so many lines, you can't tell what is connected to it from where and how you would kind of come back to that. Um, when I said the consumer is king, you know, I think what one would like to extrapolate from that, that the idea that potentially there is, there is a great deal of um, uh, autonomy at, at, that, at the level of each of these circles. Each of these circles has sufficient uh, power to determine their own destiny. Um, that being said, what I think is the next layer which is going to determine the outcome is not just the fact that each of these circles are, are identical, let's say they're all of the same size and weight and shape or whatever, but that different circles are connected in different ways to the other circles. So the entire map, for me, might look quite different than it does for somebody else. Because I may be connected to one set of circles, you may be connected to another set of circles, and that connectivity is going to determine the outcome for you, which might be very different than the outcome for me. And, and that connectivity, when I say the consumer is king, that's those individual circles. But that doesn't mean anything about that connectivity. James, saying again, thanks for letting me ask the second question. Your 1949 transistor is one of the two big things that happened in 1949. 1949 is also Claude Shannon's information theory paper, which introduced signal to noise. And uh, you've talked about lots of signal, but you haven't talked about noise. And in, in, in dynamic economies where new products are coming and products have a lifetime of three months, there's an awful lot of noise. It's not clear that you can accumulate signal so that you're always in the signal to noise is large limit. How does your model look if, in fact, noise is always large compared to signal? Does that mean that you need an interme intermediary again? Actually not. Actually not. Um, I'm sure there are others who will, dis in economics, there's always somebody else who will disagree with everything that person A says, but um, I think not. And the reason is, let me give you an example. Um, 1979, the personal computer was on the brink of being developed at Xerox Park in, in Park Palo Alto Research Center. Personal computer, somebody at Xerox had already said this would be cool if we could create something that a kid can use with a mouse. The idea of the mouse was already there. And the bigwigs at Xerox decided that was not the way to go, that the copying machine was the way to go. And those guys who actually put that together took it somewhere else and took it to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where the, personal com the Altair uh, 880 came out. And then Bill Gates took a look at it, and the rest is history. But the, I the point there is that... Um, that intermediary, Xerox as the intermediary, actually should not have, there was, there was noise. It was not clear where that personal computer was gonna go. 
but but maybe it should have should have been left to its own devices within the system. Those who were working on that personal computer were already set up in a separate uh, uh, subsection of main Xerox, and yet they were dismissed, uh, and Xerox did not market the product. So here's an example. Well, with that, I think we have uh, the mouse going, transforming into a dog as being the last question for the day. Uh, please join me in thanking Professor Vaught for a wonderful presentation. Thank you very much.